In the world of modern military contracting, giants such as Lockheed and Boeing immediately come to mind. But back in the era of Cold War defense spending, one company stood out, reaching the number one spot in terms of sales in the 1980s, General Dynamics. With divisions spanning ground, naval, and air-based weapons platforms, the company grew from its origins in submarine manufacturing to its dominant position by mastering the process of government contracting through strategic technology acquisition and a streamlined project management system that delivered consistent results, if not at the lowest price. Given its reach and long history since its origins in the late 19th century, General Dynamics offers a revealing glimpse at the true inner workings of the military-industrial complex. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time Hello, my name is Hans Launder, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century podcast. Uh, tonight, we are joined by some of the usual suspects. We have uh, Mr. Adam Smith. Hey. And I believe Mr. Nick Mason is on the call as well. How? I want to uh, transport our listeners to another time. And I want you to think, does this sound familiar perhaps to today's events or to uh, something that might, something you would see in the news today? It won't sound too dissimilar. And Just read this passage here. Sometime next year, the Navy is scheduled to award multi-million dollar contracts to build the nation's first new nuclear attack submarine in more than a decade. The contracts might seem routine at first glance, because the Pentagon lets 55,000 contracts every working day. But as the Navy prepares to sign a contract for the new vessel, government investigations continue into this unnamed defense contractor, a St. Louis contractor controlled by the Crown family of Chicago, and one of only two bidders in the project. The investigations center on allegations of contract fraud, excessive prices, kickbacks, padded expense accounts, and other charges leveled in connection with contracts the company won in the 1970s to build the SSN-68A Los Angeles-class nuclear-powered submarine, the forerunner of the new one. But the investigations do more than raise questions about the probability of unnamed general defense contractor winning a potentially lucrative submarine construction contract. Indeed, the disclosures of abuses within the submarine building program over the last decade spotlight a network of political wheeling and dealing that gives power to the party in the White House, millions of dollars to defense contractors, weapons to the Pentagon's top brass, jobs and influence to headline 
hunting members of Congress and big fat bills to the nation's taxpayers. The cast of characters includes Henry Crown, who parlayed a Chicago gravel company with city contracts into a stake in this company valued at more than $500 million. Admiral Hyman Rickover, the autocratic father of the nuclear Navy, David Lewis, a hard-driving executive, and P. Takis Biliotis, former executive under federal indictment for allegedly taking kickbacks. Biliotis has offered to give federal prosecutors tape recordings of conversations about the company's inner workings in return for a deal. Now, of course, this sounds like typical drama that plays out with our military-industrial complex. Might shock you uh, to learn that I'm actually reading from um, a sort of system newspaper, uh, the Chicago Tribune, which today wouldn't dare publish an article uh, header like that. And um, you wouldn't read anything like that except in obscure blogs or only if this scandal got way out of control or if the system allowed it to leak out. But if you transport yourself back to the year of 1985 and you think who was in the late stage called war, the biggest defense contractor in the country who had actually founded some of its roots in the previous century and had been eternally enmeshed in international relations, in back-channeling, in some of the most powerful families in the world, you would be surprised to learn that it is a company that many of you probably have heard of but only regarded as sort of a background figure today. And that would be, of course, general dynamics. So today, we would like to talk a little bit about general dynamics. Um, general dynamics is a, uh, it, it is quite the monster in a lot of ways. The original war profiteer, in some ways, and its a predecessor that some of you in maybe the Northeast have heard of, the Electric Boat Company, or the Electric Boat Corporation, as it later came to be known. And you might have heard of many of the technologies it's pioneered or the products it's delivered and its uh, predominance in the Cold War, especially in the, uh, the nuclear arms race, and the, the aerospace race cruise missile race, the tank race, all of it. It's one company that's been involved in, in lots of these scandals and breakthroughs and just about every presidential administration from McKinley to uh, our current president has had to deal with this corporation. Now, General Dynamics, uh, I think, is, a, is kind of a mystery to many people. It only shows up occasionally, sometimes in the um, long-winded and overly complex theories of like the, the Marxian left on the internet. And it often shows up in reference to something like an investigation into the JFK assassination or into uh, Vietnam or something along those lines. And it's really only those people who seem to have had any clue as to go in and look at what this company is and who's involved in it. And generally, I was always kind of found wanting, well, who, you know, 
who exactly is General Dynamics? You know, who, what is this company? And we all know the things they make. They show up on the news occasionally. But their, their actual history and their complex nature of the few times in, in a previous era of America in which they were actually caught and found out and exposed, um, that's all kind of gone to the wayside. So in my quest to understand general dynamics, I started looking for good books on the subject. And unfortunately, there are not many. There are not many uh, great authoritative sources on general dynamics. For example, this scandal in 1985 that turned into a Justice Department and congressional investigation uh, was the last time in which this really broke major news in in almost 40 years for this company. Occasionally, you will see General Dynamics uh, get in trouble. You can look at something like the Corporate Research Project, which, you know, they, they've, they've kind of compiled a, a summary list of certain things, like in the mid to mid-aughts, you know, they had to agree to pay $4 million to settle a federal charge for a fraudulently billed project or, you know, a committee in Congress hit them with a slap on the wrist and said they, you know, they mismanaged something. There were billions in cost overruns and they fucked up a Marine Corps tank program, but there were no real consequences. And in the 90s, there were apparently problems with uh, some kind of delivery to South Korea of the F-16 fighter jet. And there's lots of little things here and there, but the, the 80s was the last time that the company was really widely exposed. And that was, for whatever reason, because they just become too greedy. They become too vast. And it's not really clear why the system wanted to expose them a little, but they did. And it just so happens that around this era, there were two books written on the history of general dynamics, um, which is sort of depressing because. There has not been a great history uh, that I've been able to find, other than uh, history of the Electric Boat Corporation, which is not that great. Um, but there's been no great history or long article or investigation into the company since around the time of this large scandal. And there were so there were two books that I found, uh, one of which I actually found by happenstance in a uh, in a uh, used bookstore called Brotherhood of Arms by Goodwin. And there's another book I found online that I actually ordered because I could not find a great uh, digital copy of it called The Defender by Roger Franklin. Uh, the story of General Dynamics is very complicated. It's very data-driven. Um, there's lots of numbers. There's lots of small connections here and there that are made by both authors. Um, and it would take a very long time to go into, and we're trying to at least get the ball rolling on. But off the bat, uh, as part of this show, we'd like to do a little bit of a book review, because uh, unfortunately, if you want to know more about this company or more about the military-industrial complex, um, I've often said that if you, to really understand the MIC, you need to read about each of the individual companies within them. Is really just a corporate cabal at its core and how it functions. And generally, by reading histories of the companies involved, you get a pretty good indication of how it all really works. 
we've done a show. I've done, we've done a show on Skunk Works and Lockheed Martin um, that was kind of in this vein. We went pretty deep into the history of that. Uh, and so I would say off the bat that if you're going to read only one of these books, uh, make sure you get a copy of The Defender by Roger Franklin. Uh, in terms of style, this is a much uh, more efficiently written book. And it's interesting to read. Prose is good. Uh, it's full of lots of connective tissue, if you will. Roger Franklin, I think, was an aerospace industry insider. He clearly understood how the company functioned. and He had a good eye for its internal history. Clearly interviewed lots of, uh, at the time, in the 80s, he probably would have had access to lots of the old-timers who had been there, some of which maybe even prior to, uh, uh, to World War II as uh, members of the Electric Boat Corporation and would have had a good insight into exactly uh, what were the inner dynamics in the early days of this company and you know, the early formation of the industrial complex, which really predated World War II in, in some ways, which we'll see. Um, Brotherhood of Arms by Goodwin is a, a book with lots of facts uh, that it doesn't really attempt to do anything more. And it's curious uh, why it was released. When you search for a book on general dynamics, more often than not, you will get as a result Brotherhood of Arms. And having read, read it, uh, you'll see, I'll, I saw why. And it's effectively a defense of general dynamics. And it was written about and written and released about a year after The Defender came out by Roger Franklin. And the intention is, seems very obvious um, to try and bury the story that Franklin told of the General Dynamics Corporation up to that point, really at the end of the Cold War. And uh, so their early days and their, their connections to uh, sort of the Anglo-American establishment, lots of that is left out of Brotherhood of Arms. Brotherhood of Arms is much more focused on, uh, in some ways focused on uh, sort of the politicking behind certain decisions and the crafting of uh, defense policy. For example, there's a whole chapter called The Weapon Nobody Wanted, which is effectively about the cruise missile program, which is fairly interesting. Um, but it's not much better than a slightly more intermediate Wikipedia entry in that it doesn't really present you with any connected tissue to wider figures, wider trends, anything else going on in the defense industry at the time, wider political issues. It's just sort of a, a play-by-play. We've had the Defense Department, people like Kissinger, and companies like General Dynamics get involved in, okay, here's how we craft the cruise missile program. Here's how we take something that nobody wanted in the, basically in the 50s, and but the 70s, it's everything everyone wants. It's not that interesting at its core. And you could get a better summary of it, and maybe you lose a little interesting details here or there, but you basically get the idea by not reading the book. Roger Franklin, on the other hand, 
totally different story. And in fact, it's even, I think, a shorter book, technically, slightly shorter. It's just denser with real information that's actually interesting to read. And it plays out like a, uh, almost like a, sort of a curious adventure into a uh, dark dungeon of strangeness and familiar figures. Some familiar names will pop up here and there. The Crown family, the Rothschild family, some very strange figures, some very strange places, the court of Tsar Nicholas, the Pentagon. All of these places show up in Roger Franklin's book and in the history of this amorphous company and its origins on Wall Street and its origins with Irish gangsters and uh, revolutionaries who were trying to basically trick the United States into some kind of war with Britain in the turn of the century. And it's a really fascinating story that um, Goodwin doesn't really try to tell uh, at all. Um, I'll read a little passage from the beginning of Roger Goodwin's book. Actually, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob Goodwin. Uh, Jacob Goodwin, uh, his little blurb about him attached to the book, formerly a newspaper reporter and magazine editor, has specialized in defense policy and the weapons business for the past nine years. He has been a reporter for Defense Week, and his writing has appeared in Armed Forces Journal, NATO's 15 Nations, High Technology, and Military Logistics Forum. In addition, he has served as a consultant in the office of the Secretary of Defense. So right off the bat, you understand you're getting the system perspective. This was actually published by uh, Times Books, which I assume at the time was written by whoever was associated with the New York Times, um, published by uh, uh, Random House. And, um, well, in 1985, he had uh, this little interesting blurb to say right off the bat in the introduction. The U.S. defense industry is peopled neither by the warmongering arms merchants some cynics suggest, nor by the high-minded businessmen some industry apologists would have the public believe. It is a competitive, profit-hungry industry that employs ingenious engineers, skillful marketers, shrewd cost analysts, savvy lobbyists, and highly paid attorneys. These people sign thousands of defense contracts, hire millions of employees, and gobble up roughly one-seventh of the federal budget each year. It is an industry too vast and important to be shrouded in mystery. This book is about the arms business, not about the relative morality of war, or about combat strategies, geopolitical alignments, or nuclear disarmament. So, when this was written, you have to keep in mind that uh, General Dynamics, which we'll get into basically after, uh, since the Electric Boat Corporation, 86 years at that point of bribery, of scandal, of war profiteering, of being um, almost a cartoonish merchant of death caricature at, at times uh, in the run-up to World War I, certain times in, in, in the 1970s. Uh, is finally, it's all finally catching up with them. It's finally catching up. And as I, as I read from that blurb earlier from the Chicago Tribune, lots of important people 
are being caught up in it. And lots of people with a lot to lose and a lot of legitimacy and reputations are being caught up in this scandal. And it's starting to look like the entire defense industry is crooked. And it's grafting billions of dollars a year. Now, we know that kind of intrinsically today. I think the Iraq war was a pretty big wake up for everyone. Um, But at the time, this was still something you didn't necessarily want to say. And this was pre-internet. So it's harder to disseminate this information quicker and to have real discussions about it. So here you have a system shill sort of front run that and do the dirty work of the MIC and uh, and general dynamics and write like a love letter basically to a corporation that scammed lots of money over a long period of time and did some interesting things for sure but definitely was not at all a uh, a sort of nonchalant uh, unmotivated just manufacturer of arms there was a lot more going on and um, i would say the biggest problem with this book not only is it not very interesting at times, but that you, knowing what we know now about how the world really works, you almost feel naive reading it. You almost feel like you're actively being lied to. Like it can't be this simple. It just can't be. And it doesn't help, like I said, that there's not great information about general dynamics. It only shows up in blurbs here or there when someone has done very obscure research. And normally they're referencing books that were written decades ago, which in turn only did obscure research and only have one blurb or two on the topic. Um, So what do you guys think off the bat about that quote and maybe about the company as a whole? I mean, I know Adam, I know you're, you're more of a gearhead and you you're, I think into the weapon systems, but what do you think of general dynamics? I mean, I was initially surprised to hear that you said back in the 80s that they were the, or at some point at least, they were the largest defense contractor. I mean, today Lockheed is the biggest, followed by Boeing, and then uh, I think Northrop Grumman, which is itself a combination of Northrop and Grumman, and Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas, which was exclusively defense contracting, so now they're just this conglomerate. Um, a lot of this stuff changed in the 90s, so maybe back in the 80s it was more uh, more balanced and general dynamics was larger uh, so that was the first thing that uh, surprised me and then secondly in terms of just the overall corruption at this particular company versus the general industry uh, my understanding is that the whole industry engages in bribery uh, there's really no exception I mean Lockheed has gotten in trouble uh, there was a, a big scandal that they uh, almost got kicked out of Japan because they were trying to sell um, L-1011s, I think, to the Japanese. And that was back in the 80s. And also, if you watch the movie uh, The Aviator about Howard Hughes, which has since been, I think, uh, bought and sold by General Motors, and I forget what its current form is. Uh, but Howard Hughes was involved in aerospace back in the uh, the 40s and 50s based on his uh, family's company, which was actually started in an oil oil bit drilling equipment. Uh, but he got involved in aviation, and so that's what the movie is about, sort of him uh, 
being a pioneer, making the spruce goose, uh, or as he called it, the Hercules, but the press sort of lampooned it because it was made out of wood because there was a big uh, aluminum shortage during the war. Uh, but in any case, the, there's a good scene, a couple of scenes actually, uh, which are based on real life in that movie about when Howard Hughes goes before the U.S. Congress and is uh, called to answer for supposed war profiteering uh, during World War II for his company's activities as a federal contractor. And he basically lays it out uh, in real life as well as in the movie. They're both actually worth watching on uh, some YouTube or something, uh, some video channel out there that still hasn't censored things like this, uh, that makes a point that, look, uh, yeah, we, we paid bribes, but everybody does this. Uh, and if it was the case that uh, we didn't have to, we wouldn't, but we do. Uh, and so, I don't know, that's that's sort of fictional, but I mean, it also is based on real testimony he gave. So I think the, the general reputation of the industry is somewhat corrupt. I don't particularly have any knowledge of general dynamics being an exception to that, but I could be wrong. Uh, I'm also aware of the, uh, the two sort of famous general dynamics weapons, airplanes, uh, the F-111 and the F-16, the latter being much more successful, the former being kind of a, a flying turkey that uh, McNamara was sponsoring and was sort of shoved aside uh, very quickly and makes a brief appearance in the JFK film where uh, Keith, no, not uh, Donald Sutherland's a uh, character who's sort of, sort of this like spooky uh, shadowy guy who tells Jim Garrison about all the uh, conspiracies in Washington aligned against JFK that General Dynamics apparently had some sort of involvement in the assassination. Um, I never really put too much credence in that, but uh, yeah, an interesting company to say the least. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a an interesting pet theory, like I mentioned, of many of like the online left. Um, and I, you know, there, there is good, there's circumstantial evidence for it. And I would not disbelief, or I would not have any disbelief that general dynamics would be involved in something of that nature. Um, there's actually, I, I found this blurb from Spartacus educational, <laughs> which is like a Marxist Leninist, web page and um it's on the jfk uh assassination like on the topic of the mic and um there's this weird blurb here a study of the tfx contract reveals the way the mi micc worked in the 1950s general dynamics was america's leading business leading military contractors for example 1958 it obtained uh two point 223 billion worth of government business. This was a higher figure than those obtained by its competitors, such as Lockheed, Boeing, Donald, and North American. And that is true because at the time, Lockheed Martin, as we covered in our show, the the beast we know as Lockheed Martin today did not exist until really the 90s when they went on um the massive acquisition spree. I think they like, what was it like 
20 or 30 companies got scooped up in, in rapid succession in less than a decade. It was pretty surreal. And it was, you know, after they had faced near bankruptcy, um, and General Dynamics faced severe failure in bankruptcy multiple times in the 60s, in the 70s. Um, they had to spin off multiple consumer product divisions. They had to basically uh, crash their uh, commercial aviation unit. Like General Dynamics went through a very a series of failures, much like Lockheed did. Um, although General Dynamics had one particular difference in that it was involved in much more, many more projects than Lockheed ever was. The thing you have to remember about Electric Boat Corporation and General Dynamics, which basically came about in 1947, 1952, um, when it was reincorporated with, General, with Electric Boat Corporation underneath um, General Dynamics is that it served all branches of the military. That was one of its chief distinguishing features for decades, was that it was the sole large company that, that had um, counter, or I'm sorry, coterminous projects with every branch. Not only that, it had its own internal R&D division, it had its own material sciences division, which, after, which often actually kind of intersected with the civilian sector or just with military research and development. It had a lot of engineering consulting positions. It, it, it served a lot of purposes. Um, the thing was, though, that it, every time it tried to make any real strides in any kind of um, post-government or outside-of-government activity, it failed for one reason or another. It just never worked. Part of the assumption in the Goodwin, I'm sorry, in the, the Roger Franklin books, Goodwin doesn't really go into this as much, is sort of twofold. Number one, um, the reason why General Dynamics stayed around as long as it did and has stayed around as long as it has actually today um, is that it's able, when you're working for the government, you create this cycle of dependence. And at some point, the government is more beholden to you than you are to them. And you can see this with... See the F-35. See the F-30. I mean, holy Christ. <laughs> I mean, just... It would make some of the shysters involved with General Dynamics in the 70s just blush uh, to see that, that catastrophe. But so it's, it's a twofold problem. Number one... You, once, at some point, the government will become more reliant on you. And that actually creates a competitive advantage because General Dynamics, all they really need to do is keep bribing government officials. And all they need to do is keep doing cost, cost overruns and manipulating the stupidity of government auditors. And they've been doing that for decades. They still do that. Every, every couple of years, they get caught. And every couple of years, the story is the same. 100, 100 million there, a couple billion here. That's how they stay in business. And this is part of the reason why a lot of their private sector ventures never really worked out. The second reason that their private sector ventures never really worked out is that a large part of the general dynamics revolving door was basically only government and military people who had no real interest in then spinning off into some private sector gig or running a private sector company. They wanted to keep, they themselves 
wanted to keep working basically for the government with higher pay. Um, a good modern way of visualizing this sort of um, cyclical strangeness is actually um, the Theranos scandal um, with the, the batshit eyed uh, blonde woman, Elizabeth Holmes. Um, she, uh, either through sexual manipulation or just um, through pheromones or something, managed to manipulate um, lots of high-ranking military officials and men uh, and former statesmen like Henry Kissinger uh, into being it, on her Was board. it Mattis, Mattis there? Yes. Um, General Homo was on there. Uh, I guess uh, se sexual persuasion didn't quite work with that one, but yeah, there, there was. I think it was, that was just what you call money. <laughs> Maybe she was renting, you know, Theranos male employees to him. Uh, there are lots of Reaganite officials on there for no reason. Um, but anyways, the, the the kick was, and this is the second reason why uh, Franklin points out that they're private sector ventures normally failed and they've stayed a government contractor forever it was because when you bring these people in they are generally good at one thing they are good at exploiting the connections they made while they were still officially in the military or still officially in the government and that's all they really want to do so general dynamics uh, created this very bizarre situation over the course of decades. It's worked out very profitably for them. But it's also shown them time and time again that they actually don't have a lot of room to grow outside of contracting for all branches of the military and for the government. In that the people that they generally attract and recruit have no interest in doing that. And the government is too reliant on general dynamics to allow general dynamics to devote any significant amount of its capital into anything other than military R&D. So eventually you have to come to the conclusion, uh, reading you know, up to the 1984, 1985, which is when both these books take place, or end really, uh, you come to the conclusion that general dynamics by the 80s and by like the cold, end of the Cold War, it's really just another arm of the government. And in some ways, government was just an arm of general dynamics. And the two had merged so thoroughly that there wasn't really any room for any real private sector venture. There's not really any room for anything else. It, it's in a lot of ways just an extension of the U.S. military. And this is kind of what ultimately Eisenhower and others were warning about back in the 40s and the 50s. It's not just that you have a bunch of companies that make a bunch of stuff that the military then uses. It's this low-winding back-channel process where more and more both the company and the government get slowly enmeshed and develop a whole working style just around the other's existence. In some ways, I don't think the U.S. military could function if everything General Dynamics does or makes just vanished tomorrow. I don't think it would be combat capable. And it certainly would not have been combat capable for the last few decades. And if the U.S. government or the U.S. military vanished, General Dynamics is bankrupt immediately. There's, there's no one else to buy other than foreigners, maybe, what they have to sell. And even then, that's 
that's rare, especially now when lots of these countries have developed their own arms industries, their own companies. They don't need well, the, the F-16 was one of the most successful fighter jet programs in history, and it, it has been exported pretty extensively. Other than that, though, I'm not aware of any particular military contracts General Dynamics has. I mean, they make these uh, these submarines, right? And that's that's sort of too critical, I think, to national security to be sold. And, and frankly, it's not really realistic for most nations to project uh-huh. the type of uh, force that the U.S. Navy does. It's it's just like, okay, you can either have one or a hundred and only the latter is even worthwhile. And so they just can't afford it. But, you know, having fighter jets is probably a little bit more tractable of a addition to your defense strategy. But yeah, other than that, I'm not aware of anything. Yeah. And so I want to go into uh, a little passage here. From uh, first from Goodwin's book, and then I'll compare it to something from Franklin's book. David Sloan Lewis Jr., the seasoned chairman of the General Dynamics Corporation, wrestled with an enormous decision in early 1978. Should Electric Boat, his company's shipbuilding division, openly confront its only customer, the U.S. Navy, by threatening to halt construction on 16 new attack submarines? Had GD's long-running contract dispute with the Navy finally reached the breaking point, the two had been fighting for years about who was responsible for the long delays and enormous cost overruns that plagued Electric Boat's shipbuilding program. Each side blamed the other. Electric Boat accused the Navy of supplying fully faulty submarine designs months behind schedule and then making more than 35,000 costly and time-consuming design changes. The Navy accused Electric Boat of poorly training its workers grossly underestimating its construction costs and mismanaging its shipyard at Groton, Connecticut. Admiral Hyman Rickover, who involved himself in almost every aspect of nuclear submarine design and construction, was merciless in his criticism of electric boat. The the disagreement had grown more heated in late 1976 when General Dynamics formally submitted a claim to the Navy for more than half a billion dollars to cover its unexpected costs. Now, Call pointed out earlier that this same pattern of behavior came up in 2008 when a congressional committee reams the Defense Department, the DOD, for a similar thing where they say there's billions in cost overruns for a Marine Corps tank program. And here in 1976, half a billion, which in 1976 would be billions today, the rate of inflation, quite a bit of money. This is, is a pattern that just repeats itself over and over and over again. And as Adam pointed out in the beginning, we saw this, I mean, the F-35 program, is like the it should it should deserve a Hall of Fame award for fraud and cost overrun. It's just if you ever want to read about that, it, it's just the level of incompetence and grift um, is 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 just intersectional. It's so immense. It's especially immense with the F thirty five program because there's a bunch of foreigners 
involved in various aspects of the subcontracting and grifting on that, which added to the insanity of it all. Our um, our dearest allies had a, uh, a relatively large part to play in a piece of that, and they made quite a bit of money off of it. So we go a little bit further. Uh, he says, the prominent company Lewis now ran had come a long way since its origin at the turn of the century. General Dynamics essentially started as a little firm called the Electric Boat Company. And he kind of goes on and on. And he, uh, he says, in many ways, the development of U.S. military aircraft and naval submarines followed similar patterns. The cluster of pioneering aircraft companies metamorphosed during World War II into the consolidated Volte Aircraft Corporation, or Convair as it was known, which merged General Dynamics in '54. The genius of American adventures launched both the submarine and the airplane, yet because of official and public indifference, head starts in both were quickly lost to Europe. Observe Dynamic America, a corporate history of General Dynamics and its predecessor companies published in 1960. I tried to look for this text, whatever it is, gen, gen, Dynamic America. I have not been able to find it. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's been wiped off the face of the earth. If there was something in there that, or, that was either not worth preserving or it was extremely worth preserving and they got rid of it who knows but apparently this this older history of of the early early days of general dynamics is is vanished and it could have just been like even worse system show level propaganda in 1960 i don't know but i will note that i did look for that book or that whatever it's supposed to be corporate history and it's just i was not able to locate it so on that topic of this beginning of major cost overruns in, in the 70s, there's a passage further up where Goodwin basically tries to, to play devil's advocate for this large corporation that's clearly just ripping people off. And the Navy and General Dynamics were supposedly negotiating electric boats' formal claim for $544 million, but by the spring of 78, the estimated cost overrun had grown to $843 billion. Both sides were trying to determine how much of that loss the shipyard was going to absorb because the Navy's entitlement figure came in at $125 million. Everyone assumed General Dynamics would be paid at least that much, leaving $718 million still to be divided. And it goes on and on. And then he says, a crucial meeting on Capitol Hill radically altered Lewis's thinking. Lewis is the guy running the company at the time. He and other executives were invited to a closed-door meeting with the congressional leadership at which Representative George Mahone, the conservative Texas Democrat who chaired the House Appropriations Committee, acted as spokesman. Mahone courteously informed Lewis and his colleagues there was no way politically for General Dynamics to emerge from this contract dispute without swallowing some financial costs. There was no room for debate. Lewis recognized the futility of their position. The Navy ultimately would have to look to Congress to appropriate the money to settle all three shipyards' outstanding claims. They finally yielded in, 19, in 1978. In May of 1978, Max Golden told Hidalgo that the shipyard would accept the principle of absorbing loss on its contracts. In the same breath, Golden said his company would not go beyond a certain dollar figure goes on and on and basically general dynamics at, at the end of you can see this kind of like political backplaying this is part of the reason why this book is not that great but effectively what happens is general dynamics gets away with it they kind of con the navy into absorbing these costs 
And the Navy then exploits its connections in Congress, who then make it all kind of go away. And the investigation that really begins in 81, 82, which culminates with like it all blowing open in 85, uh, is the result of this decision to basically bury this. And it begins another pattern that you see. The Navy and the armed forces in general, the DOD in a, in a wider sense, has a habitual habit of covering for this company. Every time there's a major problem, there's several major problems with the tank programs throughout several decades, several major problems with missile programs, several major problems with material science programs that were never delivered, that were basically cons from the start. Every time this happens, because General Dynamics is basically staffed by military people, who then exploit their connections back in the active military, back in the DOD, who then exploit connections in Congress. You have a revolving door of basically passing the buck until effectively Congress sort of pays money to make it go away. And for whatever reason, this goes on and on and on. And so it's not really clear how this company uh, supposed to operate otherwise. And I maintain that having read a bit about this particular scandal, um, there's no real reason why it suddenly came up other than in 84 and 85, you had the beginnings of a political switch. You know, Democrats were a little bit more resurgent. And especially after Reagan's uh, sort of landslide victory, um, General Dynamics got sloppy, from what I can tell. And I don't know if they stopped greasing palms or whatever they did, but uh, effectively someone made it a decision at some level to expose them and to start writing articles about them, and to, which prompted this man named Goodwin to write this book, which I also assume was prompted uh, by the fact that Franklin had written a very unflattering portrait of General Dynamics the year prior. Uh, so we can now kind of talk, you know, we've kind of, I guess, gone into a little bit of that. We can start at the beginning for this company and really where they come from, which is a very strange story. Almost hard, it's almost hard to believe on some level. So if you read any um, entry-level history of the company, uh, you'll know that there's a man, there was a man named John Holland. He was Irish. He was born in Ireland. Um, who is often credited as having created the Electric Boat Corporation and created America's first major submarine program, effectively at the turn of the century in 1899. Um, this is partially true. But part of the problem with Goodwin's book uh, starts here, in that that's all you're really given. You're given some insight into the Fenian Brotherhood, into some secret societies of Irish people inside the United States and Australia and in Canada, in Britain, who were plotting all kinds of things 
and this is part of the wider issue, but you really have to read The Defender by Franklin to get a, a, a much larger-than-life perspective on what's going on here. So, first of all, I would like to read a passage from Franklin's book. Just so you get a, a feel for the kind of prose and the difference in the style. For all its noise and scandal, the turmoil of the mid-1930s affected electric boats scarcely at all. With the exception of the smears on its eustachian, the company emerged from the 1936 in better shape than it had been for more than a decade. The Second World War was about to begin. Groton, Elko, and Electrodynamic workers laid off. During the early years of the Depression, were recalled and new ones taken on to replace those who had moved to fresh jobs in other parts of the country. By the year's end, the situation had improved enough for cars to celebrate the festive season by announcing a profit of $70,000, the first in seven years. And if we go back a little further to the beginning of uh, his chapter called Dirty Laundry, on Wall Street, where irony is noted with no less enthusiasm than takeover rumors, talk of general dynamics is apt to prompt a recitation of traders' quips. The most common is subject to many variations, but usually goes something like this. No matter how bright its prospects, general dynamics always manages to get hit by a bus on the way to the bank. Over the years, Providence has had a way of taking a wry turn, usually at the most inconvenient moments. It may have been that a previously complacent congressman or committee took an unprecedented interest in the weapons deficiencies, or perhaps went even further and indulged in the circumstances under which the original contracts were awarded. A presumed ally in the Pentagon may suddenly have emerged a bitter critic, complaining of shoddy worksmanship or brandishing accusations of fraud. Even the most trusted executives have become instruments of fate's treachery, leading the company into an ill-advised venture, or in the most recent example, fleeing the country with several millions of dollars worth of kickbacks extracted from subcontractors in the public purse. I believe this is a, a reference at the time uh, when this was being written to um, this gentleman, this Greek gentleman, who is inexplicably caught up in... Uh, this drama, uh, a Mr. Takis Veliotis, P. Takis Veliotis. Uh, <laughs> he did try to leave the country. There's a whole section in the Goodwin book where they basically pin it all on him. It's like he was the bad guy and he made, he made a huge mistake by trying to flee and they pinned most of this drama in the 80s on him. Um, he was just kind of an un unassuming Hellenic gentleman. Um, it's, it's just a, a funny reference. And it tells you, like, in part, why this book was being written at the time. I think that uh, Mr. Franklin was clearly had more insight and just a, a better understanding of the company than supposed defense industry expert Jacob Goodwin. Um, and just thought it was funny that, you know, clearly this is actually very in tune with the company's real past behavior and, and how it really operates. Um, and so if we go back to the way beginning, we really start to understand what is, what is the Electric Boat Corporation? Well, here's the difference between the two books off the bat. Uh, Franklin starts with a chapter called Fenian Fantasies. And it's really a tale 
of the global Irish mafia <laughs> and their involvement in the uh, generation of the submarine program, which was intended as a way of launching a guerrilla war against the British Navy um, in, in the sort of the glory days of the British Empire in the late 19th century, turn of the century era, British empire, the exception of a slowly rising American empire is effectively unmatched um, and rules over Ireland with a, um, with a hard fist. And so uh, you have this man named John Holland who is involved with these Irish secret societies. Uh, Here's, here's a strange passage on this subject um, and so basically this man who eventually go this ship captain who went on to know holland and, and work with him on the submarine program um, they just got finished attacking some kind of uh, australian prison camp full of irish people and they were trying to get them back to america um, and so Holland had been discreetly promoting his idea for more than a year and had succeeded in making a considerable impression, but very little headway. A younger brother, Michael Holland, was responsible for the original introduction, having brought the inventor to the home of O'Donovan Rasa, arguably the most fiery of the Irish-American leaders. Rasa, his real name was Jeremiah O'Donovan, had spent more than seven years in British jails for his involvement with various revolutionary groups and was one of the most prominent exiles in New York. Found of punctuating, fond of punctuating his speeches with calls for a campaign of terrorism against Britain, he was known by the nickname Dynamite and distinguished by a long goat-like beard and red-rimmed eyes that were said to blaze with equal furry fury when he railed against Britain or almost as frequently his fellow Irish-American leaders. Holland and Rossa were opposites in almost every aspect, but, submar- but the submarine brought them together. At the conclusion of their first meeting, Rossa dashed off a short letter introducing the quiet-spoken inventor to Jerome Collins, science editor of the New York Herald and founder of the largest Irish organization on the planet, Clan na Gale. And so it goes on a little bit, and uh, you have this moment where Holland basically starts his real work on this electric boat, underwater electric boat idea, later called submarine. Late in 1872, while Holland was recovering from his third attack of pneumonia in as many years, his superiors approved his request to leave the order. Three months, uh, he, he was part of the Christian Brother Christian Brotherhood order, which is like a another Irish secret society that was. Uh, Pledged to nonviolence, but they did it anyways. More weird Irish shenanigans uh, going on here. Um, three months later, having checked into yet another nursing home to prepare for the ordeal ahead, he booked a passage in steerage on a boat for Boston. The inventor's life in his new homeland was to begin inauspiciously. Weakened by the rigors of the voyage, he slipped on a stretch of icy pavement and broke a leg, laid up in a hospital and overflowing with enthusiastic innocence of a new arrival. Holland called for his folio of submarine notes, notes and sketches and compiled a lengthy report on his work for information and consideration of the U.S. Navy. 
His first disappointment followed. Far from leaping at the chance to acquire his designs, the Navy dismissed Holland as a harmless crank and committed his correspondence to the Torpedo College, where it was filed away with the unsolicited brainstorms of other naval fantasists. Thus rebuffed and disenchanted with Boston, Holland left for New York and coming of spring. Eventually, he would find a job as a teacher of music and mathematics in the Christian Brothers College in Patterson, New Jersey. So we go on uh, a bit, and Holland at this point is, uh, he's becoming kind of a folk hero in the Irish community, and he starts doing more tests, he starts acquiring more money and more interest from basically the global Irish mafia and all these organizations to fund a, a submarine to blow up British ships. That's what's really just going on here. And so that's how this whole thing gets funded effectively. The entire program is funded by Irish criminal organizations in America before it actually gets approved and tested by the U.S. Navy. And he goes through several rounds of appeals and letters and, and lobbying effectively to the U.S. Navy and to the U.S. administration, trying to get them interested in his designs. They're not interested, but he needs to capitalize it. And so in that era... We kind of talked about this a little bit on our show, The Venture Capitalism. There were early companies, funds, if you will, that would fund whaling ventures, things like that. That was where he drew part of his money, but ultimately it came from Irish criminals. That was basically how this got going. Um, and so finally, uh, Holland creates something called the Fenian Ram, which was a slightly working submarine idea. He wrote, although the Ram was undoubtedly capable of performing the task envisioned for it, the, the opportunity was never allowed to arise. Instead, Holland tested it repeatedly through the summer and fall of 1883 in the waters in and around New York Harbor. On one occasion, scaring the daylights out of a ferryboat captain when he surfaced unexpectedly off the ferry's port bow. Holland and his boat came, became one of the city's sideshows, receiving almost daily coverage in the press through the summer and fall of 1883, where account, and even raising eyebrows in London, where accounts of the Rams' performance at the Foreign Office to insist that the U.S. government have the experiment stopped before events got out of hand. The complaint received summary attention in Washington, no doubt because Britain's concern was considered to be of all proportion to the threat. As it happened, the British need not have worried since the Fenians were doing everything in their power to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. As the excitement and unity engendered by the Catalpa's success faded from memory, the Catalpa was the 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 uh, the Irish raid on Australian prison camps which was then intended to launch a raid uh, on Canada and kill British people in Canada. The whole, the, the, something that you know, first of all, it's hilarious that this isn't a book about general dynamics, which is why I like this book. Second of all, something you learn about the early days of this program, if you will, um, the U.S. government thought it was absolutely hilarious that you have 
um, this bizarre clique of international criminal gangs uh, attempting to fight a guerrilla war against Britain and then failing at every turn um, and basically preoccupying the British with, you know, kind of lightweight terrorism, um, which was allowing the U.S. to slowly build up its naval arsenal, you know, free of worry about you know, the British becoming too involved. That's, this is where things really start to change because once, once they perform this maneuver, and clearly the British were keeping a close eye on these people within America, um, suddenly the U.S. government and the U.S. Navy and the British and others around the world become very interested in the prospects of how this could be utilized because the Fenians and, and all these groups had made it clear they were public that they were trying to find ways to attack the British Navy. And so if this was test was successful and they were hailing it, then that meant obviously uh, it could work. And Britain being the dominant naval power at the time, then kind of created a you know, kind of self-fulfilling cycle of interest where eventually everyone wanted this thing and started to become actually interested in it. Uh, the Clan Nigel, who man who accompanied the deceased comrade, accepted the assignment in the belief that both the funeral bills and his own expenses would be met. If I can jump in real quick, th th this reminds me of the business strategy that uh, gray hats in the cybersecurity industry will practice, where they'll effectively publish an exploit uh, unsolicited of a large potential customer um, internet or software presence and effectively blackmail them to hire them. Um, it's a slightly different, but I think it's the same idea. It's like you've, you've created this uh, weapon and it's like, well, gee, it would be real unfortunate if your enemies got a hold of this. So I think it's kind of a similar idea. Yeah. Well then going forward a bit, um, so Holland and his merry band of insane Irishmen um, pool a bunch of money together and they create the Holland Torpedo Boat Company. And, uh, and then in 1888, six years after his first contact at the Navy, Holland was given a chance to refute his invention's detractors. Admiral Montgomery Sicard, head of the Bureau of Ordnance, had been monitoring the official submarine research programs in France, Sweden, Russia, and even Austria for some time. And while he was unimpressed by the results, he believed it prudent for the U.S. to remain apace with the latest trend. Armed with enthusiastic support of several relatively junior members of his staff, he succeeded in obtaining $150,000 from President Cleveland's Navy secretary to finance the selection and construction of an American design. Sicard's Defeat of the surface fleet was important, but not unqualified. While the admirals could hardly dispute the wisdom of Whitney's decision, at least not in public, they did not. They did reserve the right to impose their own daunting list of performance specifications. More worrisome for Holland and his backers, they convinced Whitney. Uh, Whitney was the the Navy secretary. Sorry. Uh, to withhold the money until such time as the winning boat proved itself in a series of arduous sea trials, and so. Something else going on at the time. You had a lot of internal politics, and this shows up again and again. I think we covered it a bit in the, in the, the Lockheed episode and the Skunk Works episode. Um, you have entrenched interests 
and this is a normal thing in politics, and it's a thing in the military too, you'll have entrenched interests around a specific program or a specific set of battle strategies, supply chains, whatever. You have people who've built a career off something. And they're not interested in, in seeing that change. I mean, today we would think that's ridiculous. Like, why would the Navy not incorporate submarines into its into its battle maneuvers, into its carrier strike groups? Why would it not utilize submarines as part of a grander strategy at the time? People weren't necessarily just disputing whether or not these things worked. There's a lot of thought of why would we even want to go that route? Because not only were the, I mean, the engineering designs made sense. No one was really disputing that at the time. It demonstrated it worked effectively. Uh, and you can find really odd tales from like the 17th century Netherlands and the Revolutionary War in America, where people had invented crude submarines before. Like it was very possible. Uh, to until do the this. nuclear powered submarine. They were fairly limited in what they could perform yeah. because of the, they had these, like, the refueling needs. Yeah. Well, it's not stupid. It was just the limitation at the time. And they also, you know, couldn't carry enough oxygen on board to stay submerged uh, indefinitely until they came up with uh, some chemical processes for filtering the air. So you're faced with sort of a, a logistics problem in addition to the engineering and, and financial problems of funding this new venture. It's like, well, even if it, if I did buy this, how effective would they be? Because they have to come up on the surface constantly get refueled because they're not very big. And how are the men going to survive under there for very long? I mean, there's a lot of risks and problems with them. I, I can understand why the, the Navy, the navies of the world would be skeptical. Right. Well, later on, um, you have this man named Frost who gets involved. And you have other people who start to get involved because fast forward about a year and everyone's kind of on board. There's more money involved. No longer is he strictly in, he, trying to take money from, you know, uh, Irish rackets. He's got like real interest from the U.S. military. This man named Frost gets involved, and um, there's this passage. There was at least, as far as Frost was concerned, only one solution. Canvassing Wall Street for what would be known as venture capital today, he approved Holland's plan to begin work on yet another submarine, this one to be built in a private shipyard beyond the reach and control of the Navy's Bureau of Ordnance and Construction. The new boat, Holland 6, was to be powered by a gasoline engine on the surface and electric motor beneath it. There would just be one propeller, the same system of self-adjusting ballast tanks and tapered cylindrical hull that owed much to Holland's studies of dolphins and whales. Uh, Frost's flair for attracting attention developed in step with the Holland 6's construction schedule, the high point coming less than two months after St. Patrick's Day in 1898. The date selected by Frost is the most appropriate occasion for the inventor to take his craft beneath the surface. Holland was led into a chamber at the company's offices on Lower Broadway, where he was introduced to the waiting press as the man who would avenge the recent sinking of the Maine. If the Navy would agree to transport his boat himself and a volunteer four-man crew to a jumping-off point close to the Cuban port of Santiago, Spanish fleet's home base in the Caribbean, Holland promised to clear a path 
through the minefields, enter the harbor, and sink every ship he encountered. His sole condition was that the Navy undertake to buy the boat if he returned alive. The event caused such a stir that Holland left for Washington the next day, explaining that he planned to present his offer in person to the Navy secretary and, if possible, President McKinley. The Navy, however, remained unimpressed, and the two men returned to New York. So you have something interesting going on here where we end up seeing this a lot, especially with the beginning of the Spanish-American War and later just war clamoring in general and how you can you know, defense contractors will find a way to profit off that very quickly. Um, this notion of like oh, the, the press just shows up kind of with the story all ready to go and, you know, you have like, okay who leaked the story and stuff is done ahead of time you pay some people off or you leak it and they they want to be the first to get it and like this this is a tale as 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 old as time and if you watch like uh century of the self story on bernays uh by adam curtis this is this is a hundred percent a thing and general dynamics has uh succeeded quite well from uh, clamoring in the press for war. Um, it, it's definitely been, I think, the thing that has driven their business more than anything is you know, allowing the press to convince the dumber set of politicians and Navy brass and just military brass to believe in something that General Dynamics or others then leak to the press to begin with. And it just kind of creates this weird cycle, although at the time, the Navy, fascinatingly, was not impressed, and which speaks to a different character of the Navy at the time. Uh, number one, you, at the time, you still have a predominantly WASP, German-ish, Germanic Navy, Germanic people that run America. Um, this These weird uppity Irishmen <laughs> who are like clearly criminals, um, you know, trying to sell you their their diesel and you know, a little like electric motor submarine program. Um, they're just not interested. But they're also not interested in the optics of what it would mean, um, which is an interesting political dynamic that completely well, fades out of the question it, later it's on. It's sort of an dynamic. unsportsmanlike uh form of combat. It's very clandestine right. and uh, especially when the Germans ramped up the production of the U-boats. The press had a field day about how sneaky and uh, dastardly this behavior of sinking ships with no warning was. And so I think there was that. I also, I don't know this. I don't know the history of Annapolis graduates and their mentalities, but I can imagine that it's sort of similar to how the army was insistent upon maintaining cavalry units for well past their expiration date because of the, the regalness and the sort of um, legacy of having that kind of upper class culture involved in your military. You can sort of see that with uh, boatsmanship and uh, all the type of, uh, well, if you even look at crew and stuff like that in the East coast, that culture of just the aquatic upper crust, I can see how they would view above board, above water vessels to be kind of this honorable type of warfare. 
And I would imagine that played into a bit of their psychology of not wanting to have things under, underneath the, uh, the waves. I mean, going on the ocean mm-hmm. <laughs> as it, as it stands is pretty difficult, especially back then when they didn't have GPS and, uh, all these, uh, electric systems and pumps. It's very dangerous. And so to imagine sending your men under the water, you know, your, your whole point of having a boat is to stay above water. So you're going to intentionally submerge yourself. I mean, it's just a huge psychological shift for cultural and just, uh, you know, sheer survival psychological reasons. I, I can imagine there was again, resistance to that aside from the practical advantages of having a submersible. Right. Well, eventually Holland basically gets forced out and the company um, gets quickly taken over um, by the Gilded Age uh, oligarchs of America. Uh, And there's one particular figure responsible for turning the Electric Boat Corporation into anything of note. Um, which then leads to general dynamics, and that is one Isaac Leopold Rice. Um, he was one of the most successful s- stock traders of all time, and he was um, pretty much described as a vulture, <laughs> something like that. He uh, he was he was a he was almost a cartoon character. Um, so here's a quote: Throughout his career, he had in mind the potential of America's advancing frontiers making his first fortune as one of the most promising among the 40,000 railroad lawyers whom Jack London contemptuously described as conspiring to defeat the people in the courts. Later, having left the service of the railroad barons for the independent career of a large private investor, he generated his next millions in the infant science of electricity. With the cash accumulated during his career at the bar, Rice bought control of the Exide Battery Company, a firm that had achieved moderate Modest, successful manufacturing what was then known as chloride accumulators. The price is high, but the deal came with a particularly attractive fringe benefit. Along with the plant, equipment, and goodwill, Rice obtained the basic battery patent. And so here you have this weird thing where basically you have Irish criminal mafia tries to develop a way to attack the British Empire um, and then gets bought out by Wall Street, who then take um, a little bit of existing goodwill with the military and with government and blow it out of proportion. And this thing kind of generates legs of its own. What's interesting is that this entire history, and it goes on and it gets pretty deep, um, this whole first section of the book is just about this weird background. It's not show up at all in... Goodwin's novel doesn't show up anywhere. I've not been able to find any history anywhere on the internet, anywhere else talking about this period and where this company really came from. It's, it's, you would never know the just bizarre history of, of uh, international gangs and Wall Street kind of cooperating to come together and build out this company for some reason. Uh, mostly, I think at the time, they thought it would be a great grift. Like they didn't, I don't know if anyone really believed that this was the future of military technology or at the time that you could come up with 
a massive conglomerate that could serve multiple branches and could generate lots of money. We talked about this in the machine tooling episode. Um, the, the history of a lot of American industry basically revolved around weapons manufacturing. The difference was that up until the 1920s and 30s, and especially after World War II, it was mostly a small operation. Uh, there, there was lots of manufacturers, various elements of the military, who were private. They were small operations, and they kind of a lot of them just came and went, just come spun up and then spin down and never be seen again. The factory would be turned over to someone else to do something else with. You did see this a little bit with the Grant administration, which in fact I think was the first administration to really get uh, bushwhacked for defense contract um, fraud and, and bribery. Was uh, President Grant, Lincoln's lead general in the Civil War. Um, this, I think he's the only president to really ever face that level of deep, uh, scrutiny over, uh, you know, like very obvious bribery, uh, to, to award certain contracts. Um, so this, this was a thing, but you have a real attempt here, I think for Wall Street, these kind of Wall Street oligarch types in the Gilded Age to see what they can do. But once they inject enough money and once they pioneer the technology just a little bit and exploit their connections in the government, it just kind of takes off on its own. And as I read from that passage a little bit earlier about the 1930s, um, you know, this company, Electric Boat Corporation, and all the smaller companies within it, it would acquire little operations here and there. Um, it went, it's gone through a lot of downturns. It's never been a very stable business model in Till really the 1950s. Um, and even in the 1960s, General Dynamics, it was basically hinged on one or two major aerospace contracts that it almost didn't get, which almost drove it out of business. Uh, but the stability of General Dynamics then comes really around the 90s, ironically, after the massive fraud scandal and after the massive um, overcharge scandal and, and all these sorts of things. Uh, the company goes through these strange bouts and has this very odd history. Uh, but no one ever talks about it, which is weird. Uh, and it's, you know, oddly enough, it started as a kind of a naval contractor building a very niche product uh, that it also happened to have sort of pioneered. But when you think General Dynamics, most people now think aerospace and um, infantry, mechanized infantry vehicles and other weapon systems. Yeah, I, I failed to mention the uh, M1 Abrams tank, which is a pretty successful weapons platform. I don't know if they developed it in-house, though. They did do a lot of acquisitions. No, I think, well, I think, that, I think that they took that over from chrysler if i remember that correctly. sounds they, plausible because chrysler had a big yeah. uh tank factory in detroit Shit, i think literally. they have oh you know what i think i have something on that uh yeah i have a quote here at the end of another cross-country hop this one touching down in warren michigan the latest addition to general dynamics family turns out m1 tanks this is another of the company's military monopolies <laughs> 
since land systems, as it was rechristened after its purchase from Chrysler in 82, is the sole supplier of heavily, heavy battle armor to the U.S. Army. Some 7,000 tanks are on order here, each worth $3 million, and General Dynamics will build them all. Do, do we even make any other types of tanks? I, I know that we used to, like the, the Sherman, and it was like World War II. I mean, we, we made the, the M60. Like, he has a, yeah. actually has a blurb here right after that. When Chrysler's enfeeblement <laughs> obliged it to auction yeah, off the tank works, and it's only... <laughs> Little impotent, little uh, you know, little blue pill. This the the writing in this book is just, just funny for whatever reason. When Chrysler's enfeeblement obliged it to auction off the tank works and its only other profitable division, they were there were many who wondered if the policymakers at General Dynamics St. Louis headquarters had not taken temporary leave of their senses. The final price of $336.1 million in cash was at least $30 million above the most common estimates of the worth. Well, the M1 itself was the object of intense criticism from those inside and outside Congress who depicted it as inferior in every way to older and far cheaper M60 tank, which it was due to replace. That's, that's bullshit. It's, it's much better. General, general Dynamics... Well, yeah, I mean... The, Obviously, there were people in Congress who, and this is another thing, by the way, there are whole fucking congressional districts that survive off of weapons programs. Oh, and for that's sure. Part of the, the grip here, and you see this all the time, like where the military. There was a story ten years ago. I think it was on the. It was actually about the M1 Abrams, where like the military basically told Congress, "Yeah, no, we're good. We got we got more than enough of these. In fact, we're looking to maybe." you know we, uh, rethink our military strategy because we don't need this many tanks and congress basically told them no you're <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna keep the appropriations going for funding this and then you look at like oh okay well congressman dickhead you know is in swing district two and if he you know like okay if we stop the appropriations, if the plant closes, then it flips to the other team or the district's in trouble and I owe that guy a favor. Yeah. Like, you know, this this stuff has been around forever, since, especially since the 40s. And you can see that in the logic here of what he's writing. Like, there were people in Congress who did not want the M1 program to take off because there was the M60 program. And people were invested in that. So, but um, he says, which was due to replace General Dynamics affable chairman David Lewis shrugged off the doubters, explaining what the M1 was a target of opportunity too good to pass up. But the team of imported managers applying the lessons learned on the F 16 production line in Fort Worth, the war in operation would settle into a steady groove, permitting a start to research and development on the next generation of heavy battle armor. So, so what, what uh, are they de- designed in-house then? I mean, I'm always fascinated by these companies who's like Oracle Corporation, whose sole modus operandi in the past large amount of time is just to acquire other companies. And it just astonishes me how these companies can, uh, I guess, profit uh, in the long run because... I don't know. It, 
as a customer, I view a company as partly an expert on whatever they're selling. And if they're just acquiring other people and then laying them off to cut costs, I I'm somewhat skeptical of their ability to maintain and extend and enhance certain uh, platforms that they're selling. So I am curious what their R and D department is. I, I know that they developed a, uh, comparable or at least in their view, uh, similar concept of the skunk works program for one of their, um, I think it was the F 16. I'm not sure, but it was, uh, one of their major platforms. And I don't, I haven't heard of anything recently that is all that interesting. Uh, it seems like they just bought a bunch of stuff. That isn't, that is an accurate take. So part of the, part of the reality of, uh, General Dynamics and Electric Boat, even before General Dynamics, is that it's always had a lot of cash. And it's always, it's never really struggled so much with the ability to get funding. The problem has always been ability of work or new contracts. And this explains in part the recurring behavior around uh, overrunning costs and the billions of dollars because there's a fundamental aspect to military procurement economics in that there is, you know, contracts are not guaranteed. You have to compete. And sometimes um, you have to expect into your cost-benefit analysis a period of lag in which you will not have a certain kind of contract. And that can be a problem. So one of the ways in which Lockheed definitely got around this problem, uh, and one of the ways that Electric Boat and General Dynamics get around this problem is through acquisition. Because again, being cash flush and having lots of money and having powerful connections allows you to remain very liquid. So um, here's a good example. <clears throat> In 1911, Electric Boat takes over the New London Ship and Engine Company in Groton. Uh, to build diesel engines and other machinery for various submarines and commercial ship uh, contracts and programs. And right after, during World War I and after, Electric Boat uh, is basically told by the Navy, we need 85 submarines. But they have a, a subsidiary called Elko and another subsidiary called Submarine Boat Company, which are basically the conglomerated parts of other companies and other small factories or shipyards or machineries or patents or whatever that they've acquired with cat being cash flush to then task off to building these programs or building these orders out. And they're building like Liberty ships or standard submarine chasers. Like they're not even anything particularly unique. They're just, they just sort of exist to handle the production line. And this is a behavior that becomes like more and more common is that 
it really, really only exists on some level over time to add a level of sophistication um, and money to existing operations. And to take existing operations, take, take what works about them, and then include it into your own operation. It's On its own, it's not that much of an innovative company. And it seems like in some ways, especially going into the 80s, especially with like the, the, the 70s and the 80s with the M1 program, on some level, General Dynamics becomes the go-to um, fixer for the military. Or at least they were. We have a program. It's not working. The F-16 program, the M1 program. We have nuclear submarine program. If the cruise missile stuff can get it going, can't bring it to product, can't commercialize it. We tried to commercialize it, didn't want to. You know, the production line is shit. This company is failing. Bring in General Dynamics. And more often than not, they get it going. What you can say about General Dynamics is that, yeah, they're fraudsters, and yeah, they overcharge. Yeah, they've made hand over fist for no reason. But they actually do deliver. They're not, it's, not like a, it's not like Theranos in that sense, where there's literally nothing, and it's all, it's all a joke. And they actually have delivered on real things, but they normally do it just through acquisition or taking over someone else's contract and sprucing it up. That has been their modus operandi for decades now, and that's still what they primarily do. They really just run the nowadays, they mostly run the updated and maintenance model of existing contracts, some of which go back to the Cold War era. That's basically their thing. And there's, I think there's a real question of what is General Dynamics going to be in 20, 30 years when those contracts are just not serviceable anymore and they really need to invent new products i don't know if they're going to be around they weren't asked to be a part of uh f-35 for the most part uh they have not been asked as far as i know to play a major role in i think what the marine corps is thinking of as um their new way what of do they warfare. call that the infantry fighting vehicle or some cringe term like that I, I guess I thought that. Well, I thought the Marine Corps basically thought they were going to go back to like Iwo Jima style warfare with Pacific Islands. It's nonsense. it's weird. Like them and the Army are like in some kind of dick measuring contest where the Army is like trying to do island hopping now, and then the Marines got this like lame uh, leftover job of like, well, you're going to play uh, island uh, missile. Uh, command or something like that. They're launching these missiles at China, I guess. I don't know. It, I I really don't follow this stuff anymore because I think our empire is just a complete disaster and not worth salvaging at this point. Uh, it's sort of interesting strategically uh, in the abstract, but I could care less if we lose a fucking carrier at this point because I think you know the sooner the empire has its comeuppance, the better it is for the people who actually live in this country. But uh, end of speech. Uh, but yeah, there, there's some weird, weird chessboard maneuvers going on right now. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to go back into this this. So what I'm I'm trying to make a point here that general dynamics it it it's like it's a tool of the system, and it started out as one. 
And this is something that was um, very interesting, but almost disturbing to read in Franklin's book. Um, it's kind of a little lengthy, but bear with me. Foreign sales had always been the key to Rice's plans for the company. Even before merging Holland Company with his other possessions, Rice had made at least one attempt to establish a licensing agreement with Vickers. His offer was received with polite interest, but no particular enthusiasm. Vickers, by the way, is a man who works for uh, the British Empire. Uh, how could any Navy, particularly that of the world's premier sea power, be expected to invest its time, money, and prestige in an untried device that could not even win the support of the inventor's own government? The trials on the Potomac and the subsequent congressional endorsement eliminated that objection, but did nothing to improve the company's precarious financial position. America's Navy expenditures were a trifle in comparison with the 26 pound a million year that the Royal Navy had. Access to that treasure trove would mark the difference between international success and slow starvation at home. Rice set out to woo the Royal Navy through Sigmund Lowe, an English banker who was both a protege of Lord Rothschild and the Vickers conglomerate's chief financial officer. The two men had met in New York not long before Rice's first cruise in the Holland Six and re remained in regular contact. Within weeks of the U.S. Navy's forced decision to buy its first boat, Rice wrote to request Lowe's help in obtaining an interview with Lord Rothschild and any other architects of the fleet who could be expected to lend their support. Rothschild's help was vital. Three years before, he had instigated Vickers' merger with the Max, Maxime Nordenfeldt Munitions Company, serving as both unofficial spokesman for the parliamentary cabinet and chief source. The financial backing needed to keep both parties at the conference table. If Rothschild could be persuaded to support the submarine's introduction, Rice knew that he would have to fear from British admirals, who shared the view of their American counterparts in regarding underwater warfare as a dangerous and heretical indictment of their beloved dreadnought's supposed invulnerability. A tin death trap no, longer, no larger than a steamer on the upper Thames. One admiral said in reaction to the U.S. government's recent decision. Another of the fleet's offended patricians, Admiral Jackie Wilson, saw the submarine as a knavish device fit only for a cowardly foreigner. It was, he said, a damned un-English weapon. Rice sailed from London in 1900 and found Rothschild a good deal more receptive than he had reason to hope. Propelled through a series of meetings with increasingly senior officials at Whitehall, in the Admiralty, the American soon found himself before the first sea lord, Sir George Goshen. Ignoring the protests of his uniformed subordinates, Goshen planned an immediate order for five boats on the understanding they would be built by Vickers under the supervision of imported American technicians. A more sensible approach might have been the boats completed in the United States and shipped across the Atlantic as deck cargo, but Goshen, like his avatars in the modern defense establishment, was obliged to abide by an unwritten law that demanded the naval budget be spent at home. Rice and Lowe could not have been happier, for each for his own reasons, since he was selling the company's technological expertise above all else. Rice had cause to dread the prospect of building more boats at home. Filling the sudden rush of British 
borders together with those of the U.S. Navy would have required a considerable investment in an expanded workforce and new equipment that the company could ill afford to make. It was much simpler and almost as lucrative to encourage Vickers' debut as a submarine builder in return for a substantial royalty on each boat. Rothschild, Lowe, and Rice plotted the future of the Royal Navy's submarine force in a series of negotiations that proved a good deal more protracted than might have been expected. The two companies carved up the world like a piece of fruit. Lowe claimed Europe and the Empire as Vickers' private domain, while Electric Boat walked away with Central and South America, the Caribbean, and parts of the Near and Middle East. Japan and Russia, countries where both firms had held high hopes for future sales, were declared free trade zones and left open for competition or cooperation. For the first time in its short history, Electric Boat's future seemed relatively secure, with Vickers' globetrotting salesman now able to cite the Royal Navy as ultimate proof of the submarine's coming of age. So here is the beginning of the model that I'm describing. Electric boat and general dynamics exist as technological expertise conglomerates rather than purely inventors, rather than purely clever marketers, as Jacob Goodwin described them for some reason. The goal is to slowly grow your ability to generate cash enough to grease palms, gain entry into a market, acquire existing contracts, acquire existing plants, acquire existing shipyards, acquire existing people, create a subsidiary, and move on. It's sort of an an entity that never really stops growing, but it doesn't grow in-house. It grows purely through leeching off the government, leeching off war, and then finding other ways to continue its own operation. That is the real history of general dynamics. And you do see that in 1940s post-war America. You had a company called Canadair. It was owned by the Canadian government. um, And kind of like Electric Boat, after the end of the Ford, after the end of World War II, uh, had nothing to do. Contracts and mostly dried up. Um, electric boat over the you know, in World War II, I think produced uh, seventy four submarines and three hundred ninety eight PT boats. Uh, but again, these are mostly utilized. These are mostly built uh, through plants and subsidiaries that Electric Boat had acquired over a period of time. They didn't actually build a lot of these plants or shipyards themselves. They didn't build any of these machine tool shops. They didn't build the supply chains. They didn't even get the contracts initially often. They just sort of acquired the contract. But after World War II, Electric Boat really has nothing to do. Neither does this Canadian company. And the company is acquired. And thus you have the introduction of two things. The first time that you have a major defense contractor branching into multiple elements of warfare, and you have the real birth of general dynamics. 
this is when the company uh, no longer really just resembled the sort of Wall Street back um, interloper in you know pre World War One geopolitics. Uh, it now resembles its own beast. It's got thorough American leadership. Um, it doesn't. Ha- it has some foreign sales. It has sales to South American governments and European governments. Um, the interesting thing, too, is that in the seventies, when General Dynamics is going through kind of a big uh, sort of rebranding, and they're trying to take on different contracts, and the trend, Lewis is trying to rethink the company, um, they actually ironically sell Canadair back to the Canadian government, and they make a pretty hefty profit on it. Uh, and then the irony is that Canada was then acquired by uh, Bombardier and then again ceased to exist and hasn't existed ever since. But this is, this is I think, the only time in which General Dynamics actually uh, really spun off a major part of its company and didn't just sort of downsize it or just turn it to zero. Uh, General Dynamics also got Convair in 1953. and the, they had to go to the government to get approval for that. Although the government didn't know. If you read, like, there's a little bit on it in both books. Like, there was never any question that the government was not going to approve it. And that's something that also shows up time and time again. Um, there's very little anything that the that General Dynamics wants to do or proposes to do that they don't immediately get the say-so from the government. At no point do you hear any talk of an antitrust legislation being utilized against General Dynamics. Despite the fact that it had a literal tank monopoly for a time, it had the literal nuclear submarine monopoly, it had a submarine monopoly in general uh, for a variety of aircraft platforms, it had the monopoly for a variety of subsystems, it had the monopoly. Um, never once is there talk of you know utilizing antitrust against General Dynamics, despite the vast size of it. And Hasn't again, that pretty much gone away at this point, at least now? But I think even back away. In, in the 90s, especially, uh, Defense Secretary Cohen, uh, whoever that guy was under Clinton, he encouraged the consolidation of the industry to make it oh, uh, more financially survivable I mean, and viable. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's how Lockheed was born. <laughs> was, or the modern, modern. modern Lockheed. Modern Lockheed. Lockheed Martin was born. was mm-hmm. through the encouragement of vast centralization in the post-Cold War era. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, at the very least, antitrust has been dead a long time. But the political equation occasionally calls for you to talk about it or threaten it. Uh, never, never once is that, I'm not going to say that has not been at least threatened against certain conglomerates within the MIC. General Dynamics is one where that was never talked about. Never talked about. Never talked about that they had the virtual monopolies on multiple products serving multiple branches of the military. It basically meant that the company had a never-ending source of revenue. And of course, that's the game. Is that 
once they've kind of gotten their foot in the door, you can't get rid of them. You, you just can't. You can't allow them to take a contract because their whole game uh, in the old days, it was to use Wall Street capital. It was to use the Anglo-American establishment, the literal Rothschild family <laughs> to, to uh, scale them out and give them money to, to scale up production and, and just look like the better candidate for a contract or to at least take over a contract. Now they just they generate enough of their own money. If there's something that they want to go do, they're going to go do it. I think the way you're, the, I ultimately look at General Dynamics having read a lot of this is that when they're not involved, it's because they don't want to be. And I, I think I said earlier, like they weren't asked to be involved in the F-35 program, but I think that generally just they didn't want it. I think that if like they clearly have demonstrated over the course of you know over a hundred years now um, that if there is something that they want, they are going to be a part of it, and they will find a way. And this is a company with deep, deep ties to the oligarchs that run the Western world, and it's spent a lot of time making a lot of money for them too, and winning their wars and ensuring their dominance. So if General Dynamics gets involved with something, you can be assured that someone or some group of people very powerful wanted them to be involved because they really exist only to come in and apply technological expertise or management expertise to an existing thing. And to if something is not satisfactory with the establishment, General Dynamics gets brought in. That seems to be the, uh, really what this company is. It's the chief fixer of the military-industrial complex.